RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Seven o'clock on a Tuesday night. Guess there's only one thing to do. How about a live show? It's Mission Log Live. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And you are just soaking in Mission Log Live. Look at that. I can see you just soaking away in the Mission Log Live like you don't even care. This is the show where we get together with you, our Star Trek pals, and we talk about Trek and other things. Whatever's on your mind. See, now that part, that's where you call in. We're good, but we don't know what's on your mind yet. So give us a shout. There are a few ways to do that. You can click on the link to join our Zoom meeting, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone. You can also call us, just like Jeff Lynn. If you'd pick up that telephone, 646-558-8656, 646-558-8656. Then enter the meeting code that you'll find in the show description and the comments, and then you are on with us. Joining us this week, it's Rick Sternbach. Hardly somebody who needs an introduction if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Trek fan, but we like introducing people, so we're going to do it anyway. Uh, You want to talk to Rick about designing the 23rd century and the 24th century, plus his passion for real space tech. So get your calls in. 646-558-8656 is the phone number to call. Then enter the meeting code that you will find in the show description and the comments, or you can join our Zoom meeting, just like John said, and then uh, you can use the one tap from your smartphone. Oh, golly, just so many ways to get in touch with us. Uh, and you want to keep those handy because we've got a lot of stuff coming up in the future as well. In fact, John, why don't you tell people about some of the things happening in the future? Well, you know, Ken, the, the future, we, we are both interested in the future because that is where you and I will spend the rest of our lives in the future. <laughs> So on the live show coming up, we have people like Ben Robinson, plus Kevin Dilmore, plus more special guests. So many people coming up on the live show. Um, you're, you're with us now. So uh, just like you do every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, you tune in on Facebook.com slash Mission Log Pod. And that's where you'll find us and our special guests. What yes. else coming up, Ken? Well, you will also find us and special guests in the virtual realm as well. I uh, got some VR events coming up that I wanted to tell you about. Of course, these are the good people at Sensar who um, you know, have their whole big VR platform. We've gone in and, uh, and laid the, uh, the Roddenberry Nexus in Sensar. In Sensar. That's why we named it that, so we'd remember where we put it. And we've got some events coming up. Like next Thursday night, September 13th, we are bringing back Star Trek trivia on the bridge. Um, could be round one of a trivia tournament. I don't know. I think, yes, that's the plan. So that'll be the first thing that we'll do. That'll be on the 13th. Uh, A couple of weeks later, September 27th, we are going back into the Nexus for a tour, this time with a special Star Trek guest. Are we not saying who the special Star Trek guest is, John? I want to tease it. I just say it's a very special Star Trek guest. It's a very special. Yes. Well, it is a very special Star Trek guest. It's true. I'm surprised that we're not saying uh, his or her name, but apparently we're not. And uh, and then on the October 11th, you can go inside Star Trek with us and with Rod Roddenberry. Uh, we'll be hosting a special event with clips from the 1976 Gene Roddenberry album, 
Inside Star Trek. I'm not going to play the whole album, I don't think, although I can't remember if we're going back and forth on that or not. Or not. But uh, John and I and Rod and I and John and Rod <laughs> have big tracks from Inside Star Trek uh, that, that really speak to us. And so we're going to play those. And then uh, we'll all sit around and talk about them. Not just the three of us. I mean, just like we do here on the live show, we invite people to come to Sansar. Not so, you know, we can stand there and expound, but so we can have a conversation with people who come there as well. All this is free. And even if you don't have the whole headset, even if you don't have all of the, you know, VR rigmarole, let's say you don't have a Rift. Let's say you don't have an HTC Vive. As long as you have a relatively recent computer that's running Windows. And yes, Mac people, I hear it from you all the time. But you can actually run Bootcamp as well. And then uh, you can just go in through a web browser and, and take part as well. So sansar.com to find out more about that. And uh, we will remind you about those dates again as those dates approach. Hey, uh, very quickly before we get to the poll, I'd like to say hi to new friends and old friends who are all chiming in right now on Facebook and saying hello. There's Carlos, there's Paul, there's David, there's Ron, there's Jessica, Wes, Tracy Lee Coco. Always nice to see you there. Uh, Mr. Willie, Scott Palm, uh, it's a bunch of our STLV buds. Ken, they're just they're, they're hanging out. They're saying hi. Jocelyn, uh, all I, I love seeing this. It's uh, it's like our own mini STLV right here. So welcome <laughs> to everybody who is saying hi. I hope that every one of those people who showed up will, of course, take part in the poll uh, that we have going as well. In fact, uh, before we get to tonight's poll, and 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 we try to like you know fashion it around who our guest is for the week, at least you know somewhat. Uh, before we get to this week's poll question, though, uh, last week's poll question, John, what was it? It was wormhole or warp drive. And a whopping 16% of you said wormhole, 84% of you said warp drive. I, I kind of get it. it you know, I, I think there's, um, there's an elegance to the warp drive. You get to pick where you're going. Uh, wormhole, though, there's certainly a convenience. You, you go in and then maybe you say hi to the wormhole aliens that could be worshipped as gods if you are so inclined, and they just end up in another place. So that's kind of cool, too. But, but most of you, an overwhelming majority, opted for warp drive. Given, you, uh, uh, you know, maybe some of the inherent problems with warp drive, given that it might break down at some point. See, the thing about the wormhole is like you you could be in like an 85 Honda and that wormhole will still just put you wherever it wants to put you. See, warp that's drive, the thing. And, you know, I'm wondering if people are just assuming that it's an unstable wormhole, because if it's a stable wormhole, I'm going that way every single time. There was yeah. uh, there was some song, um, uh, don't place faith in human beings. Human beings are unreliable things. Don't place faith in human beings. Human beings will fail you. And they build warp drives. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Aliens, on the other hand, you know, they, they build the wormhole to last. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we haven't gotten all the way through Deep Space Nine, so I guess it's possible. <laughs> Uh, so this week, uh, not unlike the you know wormhole or warp drive. Hey, here's a question for you: spacesuits or spaceships? Now I'll tell you what you know. Uh, sort of uh, brought this question to our mind is we kind of want to know what drives a show or a movie for you. Is it the things people wear? Or is it the costumes, the makeup, or is it the uh, you know the props they carry, the the ships they they you know sail around the universe and the buildings that they inhabit? Is it the stuff or the stuff on them? Is it the space suits or the spaceships? 
your vote counts and that we'll be counting them even though your vote doesn't actually do anything except for add up. Uh, right now, it's spacesuits, 9%, spaceships, 91%, although I got to figure, John, it is possible that our guest tonight, though unintentionally, may have his thumb on the scale a tiny bit. Ooh, you think? You think? See, I, I think our guest, Mr. Rick Sternbach, he might have a thing to say about either one, you know, and, and some people, even in the conversation there, they were saying, you can't have a space suit without a spaceship. Oh, I had a spacesuit. <laughs> you, you did? <laughs> I've never had a spaceship. Yeah, totally. I dressed, uh, actually, this would probably speak to both you, John, and Eric, um, who we will, I swear to God, bring on at some point. Um, oh, I think right now. <laughs> oh, there he is. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite spacesuits, actually, or, uh, or costumes was um, a 1950s idea of what someone in the year 2000 would dress like. So obviously I had a space suit, but I had to lie about whether or not I had a spaceship because I didn't. Anyway, hi, Rick. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <Are> you can. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, welcome to the show. Uh, I, man, we, we could go through the resume. I mean, I, I think most of our listeners know that you have had a hand in Trek for, uh, for so long. It's a real pleasure to have you here with us. And uh, let's just kick things off with the obvious question. Give us your Trek story. Wow, my Trek story. Um, you know, it pretty much starts when I was a teenager watching the original series thought it was fantastic it was it was it was different it was so different from a lot of the, the science fiction uh, films that i grew up with in the 50s um and the early 60s and holy cow you know they were talking with, uh, they were talking about about real scientific concepts that maybe one of these days we might see. So, and I mean, that, that's where it, that's, you know, it, it got me hooked along with the real space program, because when the original series came out, we were hot and heavy into human spaceflight, Project Mercury, Project Gemini, Apollo was underway. So, uh, you know, for 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 me as as a uh, you know a, a teenager growing up in the mid sixties, this was like oh my god, this is space heaven. So then, I mean, so Star Trek is part of your background in a way. But then I jokingly said, you know, yeah, somebody you know in the nineteen fifties may be wondering what uh, somebody in the year two thousand would act like, dress like, be like. I know uh, you and John especially. Uh, share um, a love of sort of a, well, sort of like a retro futurism. John, I, I know you had a ton of stuff you wanted to ask Rick about. Yeah, well, I, I, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, that retro futurism. There, there's something about that mid-century science fiction that that is so cool to me. I, I think partly because it's the first time that space exploration stood a chance of becoming a real thing. So you have science fiction before that and science fiction after that. And there's this real golden period where everybody's excited to try to figure it out. Um, now, you you just mentioned, you know, you're talking about the influences that, that you had as a kid. Um, uh, it shows like Disneyland's Man in Space uh, mm -hmm. and the work done there by Ward Kimball. And then series like Men into Space uh, in the late 50s, right. uh, featuring work by uh, Chesley Bonestall. Um, 
I, I want you to tell us about that and, and why those shows had such an impact on you. I'm going to ask Brandon, our technical director, to show we have some images of, uh, I, I believe it's models that you built of some of Bonestall's rocket work, his designs from men into space. Uh, so I like yeah, to I put mean, those up on screen. Right, right. There's mm-hmm. one, there's one uh, very retro looking rocket with the Delta winged glider up on top. Um, mm-hmm. The other image that I, I, that I shipped over to you was a ship that um, I cobbled together based on a lot of very um, current uh, thinking about how are we going to get out of Earth orbit, get back to the moon, get out to Mars, get out to other places in the solar system, okay? Uh, but before the original Star Trek series, yes, I was an eight-year-old kid growing up in front of the television set, watching Men Into Space, and there was, you know, a full season of spaceships and guys in spacesuits and building space stations and going to the moon. Um, and it was, it was all very uh, sort of air force oriented, but they covered every, you know, pretty much every possible scenario, um, you know, a rip in your suit, um, you know, getting stuck in a cave on the moon. Um, and, you know, for me, Growing up at a time when there was nothing in Earth orbit, this stuff was just amazing, okay? So starting from the late 50s all the way through the 60s, um, you had you had popular media, um, you know, showing us what the future might be like, near future, with a show like Men Into Space or the Disney Man in Space uh, uh, films uh, up through Star Trek, the original series, um, and, uh, and, and, and beyond. Uh, I mean, Star Trek didn't really stop at the end of the third, uh, third season. Um, you know, there were comics, there were toys, there were, uh, uh, you know, just, just all kinds of, of, ancillary things that that people were interested in um uh, you know and 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 then you started seeing all of those episodes being reshown and you had the convention uh, uh world opening up can I ask, uh, you're talking, I mean, you're a visual guy and you're talking a lot about what you saw on TV, things like that. What were you reading at the time? I mean, was there, was it Asimov? Was it Clark? Was it Amazing Stories? Was it Popular Mechanics? Because I know Popular Mechanics, I mean, still when I was a kid, which is uh, a few years after you, um, my favorite episode, my favorite issues of Popular Mechanics were the ones that had, you know, a gigantic space shuttle with 300 people on the way to the moon, right. things like that. I mean, was it was yeah. it just TV and movies, or or what else was uh, what else was speaking to you at the time? I know. Well, I mean, for yes, I grew up in front of the TV, and I got to see uh, science fiction movies, uh, you know, at the theater, um, uh, and luckily we had a house full of books. So, I, you know, I grew up um, uh, 
learned uh, mostly from my dad, uh, who was an architect back uh, in Connecticut. And he brought me up on a steady diet of uh, steam locomotives, naval vessels, um, uh, aircraft, um, all of the boy things, okay, all of the, the guy hardware. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was, I was reading comics. I was reading science fiction. Uh, and, and, yes, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned authors like Asimov and Clark. Um, I, I, I eventually picked up on reading science fiction magazines, science fiction novels, um, novellas, um, all the way through the point where I was able to meet these authors and illustrate their works. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it, well, can, can we talk about that real quick? <laughs> I'm just curious. So you, you made the jump though, from being a, a fan and an enthusiast and, a, and, a, and just absorbed with science fiction to then that being your job, that being your livelihood and, and better yet working on Star Trek, uh, Star Trek motion picture is your first uh, uh, professional gig in that world. Uh, I'm just curious. Can you, can you tell us kind of the nutshell version of going from fan to professional? Um, the quick story is that as I was, as I, not so quick, uh, as you know, I was reading. I was reading science fiction. I was reading, you know, as, as Ken says, uh, magazines like Popular Mechanics and Popular Science. Um, and just keeping an ear to the track about everything that was happening in the sciences, uh, in space exploration, um, and got hooked. Okay. Uh, my dad wanted me to, you know, to follow him in the architecture game. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think uh, early on I was, I was just hooked onto science and space Um when I graduated high school in 1969, I told my folks, I have to go to the Cape. I have to go to the Cape. So I got to see Apollo 11 take off in person, nine miles away from the launch pad. But I could say, yes, I was there. I witnessed this bit of history. Um, came home, um, you know, got into painting and drawing um, and, you know, again, my dad being an architect, I had the pencil put in my hand at a very early age. So I learned um, a bit about drafting, a bit about uh, uh, light and shadow and color, um, you know, got tubes of paint, got uh, boards to paint on, brushes, the whole nine yards, um, and started painting a lot of science fiction-y, spacey sort of subjects. And... Uh, Eventually, um, through uh, another another one of my mentors, uh, G. Harry Stein, who was uh, uh, NAR number two, he taught thousands of us how to fly model rockets. Well, Harry was very good friends with Ben Bova, who was editor at Analog. Uh, and I was away on a trip somewhere, but I left a, a lot of my work behind. Harry showed my stuff to Ben, and Ben said, okay, we'll give the kid a cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Nice. Which That's very to- cool. So, which totally knocked me out. No doubt. Uh, yeah. We want to get to we want to get to the part where you go then from that into the Star Trek universe in a bit. But I want to remind people first: six four six five five eight eight six five six is the phone number to call. Six four six five five eight eight six five six, or uh, you can join the Zoom meeting beyond the video part of it. Uh, by using the one tap from your smartphone and then entering the thing and doing the thing. And yeah, people do it every week. So it can't be that hard to figure out. Although I personally have never tried. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. Actually, uh, Dave is uh, Dave is here, man. Dave, how's it going this evening? Hi, how you doing? Doing all right. What's your question for Rick? Uh, well, um, first of all, Mr. Sternback, it's a great honor to talk to you. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed your work gosh, since the spaceflight chronology, actually. Um, Thanks. And I just wonder, on the next generation, um, did uh, you know? Uh, it really there was a lot more detail, I guess, fleshed out as far as how as far uh, as how everything on on the Enterprise worked, transporters and the engines and the phasers and all that stuff. Uh, even behind the scenes, you guys um, had a writer's technical manual that you wrote mm-hmm. before you know the commercial version was released. And what I'm wondering is. Um, uh, were those things that you were directed to come up with or did you just kind of do that on your own? You know, as far as like exactly how the transporter worked. Well, I, I, I have to tell you that, that, um, when Michael Kuda got hired on Mike and I, we would sit down over lots and lots of noodles, pizza, whatever, you know, talking in the office, um, and coming up with notes, for the writers and producers, uh, which eventually became the writer's guide, which eventually became the uh, tech manual. Uh, but, uh, you know, Mike and I, we we were two sides of the same coin uh, looking at this technology and wondering, okay, yes, okay, you can transport somebody. How? <laughs> um, so we thought about it um, and, and taking a lot of cues from uh, the original series and from, uh, uh, you know, a, a couple of the, uh, the, the things that we saw in the feature films. And we began to try to nail this stuff. OK, not not as a, you know, a demand, um, uh, you know, in, in OK, this is how you do it but more of an offering of, of ideas on uh, how we might be able to, to, to talk about the tech parts of this uh, in a consistent manner, okay? Uh, but not get too overly technical about it. I mean, I love this stuff, don't get me wrong, uh, but I don't wanna fill the actors' mouths with with just handfuls of terminology, okay? Because um, Gene Roddenberry said it, I, I think he said it best. You don't explain how the six-gun works. You show it, okay? But we wanted to, to make sure that, that the writers had a, a consistent um, uh, uh, box of information that they, they could go back to if they needed to. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Thank David. you. Appreciate that. Hey, David, thank you so much for calling in. All right. Thanks. All right. 
I want to ask you, um, Rick, because I think you and I had a discussion, oh, I want to say close to two years ago now at a convention that we were at, where you were talking about um, talking about the communicator. Uh, and I was actually visiting your site again uh, earlier today, getting ready for tonight's show. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because there's an early there's an early version of the next gen communicator, which has the delta and it's got the circle behind it. But what it's really got is like it's about that thick. It looks like, and it's got yeah. this thing where it would have had all yeah. the parts that would work, right? And somewhere right. along the way, I can't remember if it was you or Mike or who it was, but somewhere along the way, you were like, nobody's going to see that. It's going to look. Well, I mean, not to be too much, but it's going to look like this, right? I mean, there's no indication of how this works, but it does. I mean, is there, with your love of, I mean, especially going back to, I mean, so much of what was cool about the space stuff of the 50s and 60s was you looked at it and it said space. I mean, is there a difficulty in um, in 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 sort of letting less be more in some situations? Well, you mentioned the communicator specifically, and what happened in that case was, uh, you know, I I took some cues off of uh, what we saw in the original show. Uh, You know, the wrist units that we saw in the films. Okay, Uh, and I just I just started, uh, you know, sketching up a lot of uh, complicated looking hardware. Okay, and. Gene took one look at these sketches and he said, why not just make it the Starfleet emblem? Which was a head slap moment for me. And I just said, oh, my God, you're right. (laughs) Put all of the guts behind the more elegant shape. And I I, I didn't have a problem with that. Okay. Early sketches for a lot of the stuff, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on TNG, a a lot of the early sketches, um, we had a very limited number of um, uh, design cues that we could study, okay? And I didn't mind drawing, you know, sketch after sketch after sketch and showing them to the producers and getting some kind of reaction, okay, how do you want to see this going? Okay. Um, and, you know, the, the inspiration for the com badge was a more simple, elegant shape. Uh, and along the way, okay, we developed some of the procedures. Uh, you know, we talked to the, to the writers and producers about, okay, how do you use this here? Okay. You tap to activate. And and after everybody got on board with what this thing was and what it was supposed to do, uh, then we started filling in a lot of the background information about it, okay? All the techie stuff about, okay, the batteries, the sensors, um, you know, what's the range of, of the, uh, the comm badge if you're, you know, if you're standing on a planet, okay? Um, and, and we developed all that as we went along, okay, um, uh, things like the, uh, uh, the hypospray, okay, um, you know, I've, I've written about the hypospray in some of the magazine articles and things, um, you know, I thought it would have to be another two-handed gizmo, like, mm. like what McCoy was using, right, and 
at the time I was drawing these things up, uh, I had a little bit of an asthmatic condition and I had an albuterol inhaler. And I looked at this thing and I said, oh, my God, <laughs> maybe I can turn this into a one handed injector. OK, um, Gene and, uh, you know, Bob Jessman and Rick Berman, uh, uh, you know, Gene particularly wanted uh, these props to be uh, smaller, faster, sleeker, um, and the one-handed hypo. It grew out of a real piece of medical technology, okay, which which was perfect. You had the housing, you had the the uh, uh, drug container, which would slip into it, and then you would use it. And that's that's how things. Uh, uh, started evolving um, on Next Generation. Uh, somebody in our chat, by the way, Chris Riker says, but how does the communicator always reach the person you want on the first try? How did mankind <laughs> uninvent voicemail? And uh, Chris, that would be that would be truly a sign of a uh, of a thoughtful and progressed future as uh, uninventing voicemail. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I want to do, if I could, I want to do three things really quickly. Uh, the first is uh, you keep mentioning this gene person and I, I think I may know who you're talking about, but I want to get to the part where you guys are, you know, in the same room working on the same kinds of things. But before we do that, I want to remind people uh, how to get in touch with us. 646-558-8656 is the phone number to call 646-558-8656. Or you can join our Zoom meeting. You can also use the one tap from your smartphone. Uh, and then um, it, then between those things, uh, we also need to do a little bit of business, I think, Mr. Champion. I would love to do a little bit of business. So uh, before we get back to our conversation with Rick and your questions and comments, we would like to remind you about our shop. It is incredibly convenient for you to find. You just go over to missionlogpodcast.com. You look in the upper right-hand corner and you click on shop. And boy, howdy, a world of shopping awaits. Our friend Carl Huber is cranking out some amazing top-notch designs for you and uh, uh, designs that just run the gamut. Ken, if you would, please, what kind of designs might you find at the Mission Log Shop? Well, it's you and me on a chip. What? Isolinear John and Ken, I know. Isolinear John and Ken are there. Uh, carbon chauvinism is represented there with a Da Vinci twist. Also, there is uh, life and the silicon supporters yet. Oh, yes, there is. Uh, your favorite lieutenant and mine, Lieutenant Jay, is represented. Uh, bonk, bonk on the head since 1966. That's where we start to get a tiny bit retro. Of course, you can go back even further with uh, ethos, pathos, logos. Yes, you're still allowed to be cool as Kirk. Uh, there's some uh, swag from the Ditalics Mining Corporation. Really just all kinds of stuff there that you can you can check out and take with you. And then here's the thing. You can take it with you lots of different ways. You can you can drink from a cup with a ton of that stuff on it. You can stick all right. that stuff all over the place. You can wear it as a shirt. And um, oh, oh, wait, Ken, Ken, I, I'm looking for something I like to decorate. I'm looking for oh. something here. If I took one of those designs and yes. say I wanted to blow it up, uh, but yeah. I, I don't I, I don't just want a poster. I don't want it on paper. I want it on fabric. No. Um, what are you what are you like a plebeian? Of course, you don't want no paper. No, no. Yeah. You want um, 
Oh, I, I know. I'm looking for something in the range of a tapestry. You could be looking for something in the range of a tapestry. And yes, you okay. will find that and all that other stuff we talked about. Uh, missionlogpodcast.com in the upper right hand corner. It does say shop and you could let your geek flag fly. In fact, I'll bet you could take that tapestry and just make it a geek flag and fly that wherever you go. You could. All right, guys. Now's your chance to call in 646-558-8656. And once again, we are talking to Rick Sternbach. So, uh, uh, Rick, we, we threw a lot of questions and thoughts and ideas at you before we went to the break there. Um, I, I believe yeah. that, uh, well, let's see, Ken, we, we left off on a cliffhanger with well, your last question. Then. There's this gene person that he keeps <laughs> mentioning. I, I kind of want to guess a, a gene guy, but I don't Gene Rayburn. That. It could Gene be Rayburn. Gene Rayburn. It could be yeah. Gene Simmons, either the actress or the guy from Kiss. Yeah. It could actually be uh, Gene Roddenberry. So we've talked about how you got into uh, working in science fiction art Mm -hmm. uh, professionally. Uh, We've talked a lot about, you know, suddenly we're 20 years down the road and you're working on next gen and things that come after that. How did you end up working on slash for slash with Star Trek? When I was still living in Connecticut, before coming out to Los Angeles, um, I was living uh, just a little north of New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and I see in the paper, Gene Rodbury is coming to Yale University to do a screening of the cage. And I don't know what possessed me, <laughs> but I cold called his office. This is 1974. Okay, this is barely two years after we stopped going to the moon. So I cold called his office. I don't remember who exactly I spoke with, but I said, you know, hi, my name is Rick Sternbeck. I've, uh, you know, I do science fiction book and magazine illustrations, and I understand Gene is coming to town. Would it be possible to maybe meet with him for a few minutes after the screening? And the answer was yes. And and, uh, I went down to uh, the auditorium. I met up with Gene afterwards, and we ended up talking for about two and a half hours. And it was just the the most astounding conversation um, to hear him talk about the future. about what our future might be in space, uh, what his future plans might be for another television show, for a Star Trek film. Uh, It wasn't going to happen for another four years with Star Trek, the motion picture. Well, let me back up. Star Trek phase two. Okay, um, so you know we parted ways, and he he knew what I you know what I could do um, with um, science fiction and space hardware and situations and things like that. Um, fast forward a little bit um, in 1977, um, I was contacted to work on the Cosmos 
miniseries uh, with Carl Sagan. And this is a weird sort of DNA spiral that got me out to California. Um, I, I was able to hook up with the folks at Paramount doing phase two. Joe Jennings was the production designer. I got to meet Mike Miner, who was a, a wonderful illustrator. Mike understood science fiction film. And I got to meet Bob Burns through Mike. Um, and I got to meet some of the, the set designers who were working on phase two. And it was a bit slow. And this was like late 77. So I left my, I left my, you know, I left some, uh, uh, color slides. I left a couple of uh, printed covers that I had done um, and a business card and uh, waited. Well, April 78, I get a phone call from Joe Jennings. They're announcing the feature in the morning. Do you want to come in? What was I going to say? No. And I, you know, Joe was old school. Uh, we, you know, we got to talk a lot about, uh, about film, about uh, um, just what, you know, what the expectations were for this motion picture. Uh, you know, okay. They were going to, they were going to ramp up from a television series right up to a feature film. Um, and, I got started at my desk the morning after the press conference. Uh, and then it was maybe another seven or eight months, um, you, you know, um, that I was on board uh, learning and talking uh, with all of the people in the office. I mean, uh, Joe Jennings left to work on Shogun and Harold Michelson came in as the new production designer. Well, Harold was just amazing. He worked with Hitchcock. He could do storyboards in, in dark pencil and charcoal. And I, I learned so much from Harold um, and got involved with a lot of the, the techie stuff on the ship. Uh, did a lot of the uh, control panel gra uh, graphics along with uh, Lee Cole uh, she had previously worked um, on things like the B-1 bomber. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, Mike Miner and Lee Cole and me and uh, um, John Cartwright was our lead set designer. Um, and the motion picture was just an astounding crash course in working on a popular science fiction product. Um, and th that is something I will never, ever forget. All right. Well, we have a couple of uh, video callers standing by, I'm happy to say. We have Will, who is uh, waiting patiently. Will, are you there? I'm Ken. Hello. Oh, hey there. Oh, audio. Audio for Will tonight. How are you, Will? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having having me, John and Ken. I appreciate that. Uh, I do have a question for Rick. Yes, excellent. <laughs> um, 
Rick, I've followed your work for years. I've uh, read a couple of the Star Trek magazines where your work work was highlighted and seen some of your uh, videos posted on YouTube. Hmm. And the question I have for you tonight is the Enterprise C redesign. Uh, one was originally designed um, for the show uh, that was on the back wall by Andy. Mm -hmm. And you right. redesigned that for yesterday's Enterprise. Could you tell us how that came about, that they were going to redesign that uh, model for production? Was that because of how fast they had to make it and they needed something that was a little more tangible? Or could you explain how that came about? Well, we, 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 had, the, we had the ship wall with the uh, silhouettes, the ship, uh, you know, the ship uh, uh, shapes up there. Um, well, we also had one color sketch that uh, Andy Probert had done um, at, uh, at a very sort of a shallow angle, so you really couldn't see uh, exactly the shape of the saucer uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, well, I, I mean, who knew <laughs> that they were going to call for this ship to be a real thing? Um, so I had to get... Uh, uh, drawings together. I had to uh, uh, get some blueprints ready for uh, uh, our model maker, uh, Greg Jean. And uh, with the, I, I, you know, you mentioned the time that we had, which was very little. Um, so I had to, I had to, to kind of build in a few shortcuts uh, uh, instead of an oval saucer, uh, a round saucer was going to make uh, uh, Greg's work so much, so much easier. Uh, I tried to keep the the, the flavor of what uh, Andy had done in his color sketch. Um, so there are balances, there there are trade offs. Uh, uh, in order to get this thing done uh, and not have to resort to, let's say, a miniature we had seen before, um, I drew this thing up. In order to be buildable, um, the uh, engineering hall, same, same basic story. The cross-section of the engineering hall uh, went from being oval to, to round. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it was, it was a, a compromise. Um, and a, and I, think, I, I think, in the end, a nice blending between the Enterprise D and the Excelsior. I, I thought it was one of the best-designed uh, ships in the series. Immediately when you saw it, I said, that's the Enterprise. Um, it, it, uh, it was a much better design, I thought, than the D that was used in the show. I was almost wishing away. They could have used that model as, as, our, you know, as our hero ship during that series. And I thought it was one of your best-designed starships. I... You know, when I first looked at the Voyager, to be honest with you, I thought, wow, it's a, how cute. It's a mini Battlestar Galactica. Um, oh, with the short work pile on. No, no. But I thought the Enterprise C, your interpretation of it, uh, was one of the best designed Enterprises in the entire lineage. And I was just wondering how that had, had uh, come about and why the redesign was, was done. 
and I just wanted to say thank you. It, it was well, thank you, thank you. It was it was an act of desperation. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it worked. It you know it came out fine. Uh, I actually like um, the uh, uh, I like the the Eagle Moss. Uh, see that uh, Andy designed and they finally got to put it into a physical form. Um, and I, I, I understand the shapes that Andy put into his concept ship. Um, I like them both. Will, thank you very much for calling in this evening. We do, uh, we, we do appreciate your calling. Um, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem at all. 646-558-8656 is the phone number to call. 646-558-8656. You could call in uh, just like Will did, or you could, uh, you know, use the Zoom meeting and uh, and use the one tap from the smartphone and be on in video as our friend Craig is about to be right now. I'm guessing Craig did that whole Zoom thing that is still kind of a mystery to me. Um, but we can talk about what's a mystery to me some other time. Craig, you have a question for uh, for Rick tonight. Uh, yeah, Zoom was pretty easy. Yeah, don't worry about that. Um, so uh, first, I'd like to show my uh, gratitude to the technical manual that I have right here. You can see that there. Brings back memories, I'm sure, for Rick. I had it since I was 15, oh, yeah. a long time ago. Um but uh, I just want to ask more of a general question. I'm wondering about like what was one of your harder designers or like more controversial designs that you had that you had to kind of sort of you know fight with the writers about. I want to hear a little bit of dirt in the in the in the uh, writers' room if you got something like that to tell us. About. Me no no. Uh, I was in I was in the art department and I I was chained to my drafting table, um, uh, as it were, and uh, I. I, I have to be honest with you, in the 15 or so years that I spent with the franchise, okay, um, I never tried to, to fight my way to a final design, okay? Uh, I started with a lot of sketch work, uh, got the writers and producers to, to, you know, to sign off on a general direction, Um I, I will I will say right up front, episodic television is a harsh mistress. All right. We don't have time to fight through all of these designs. Okay. Um, they trusted me. And, okay. And uh, the other illustrators that we have had in the franchise, like over at DS9, uh, Ricardo Delgado, John Eves, Jim Martin, um, it, uh, you know, we we all have just worn our pencils down to nubs, uh, turning out these these ships and props. Um, and again, the producers trusted us. Uh, yes, there were designs that that I did that uh, you know got chucked out, uh, and they said, "Look, do another half dozen doodles, and we'll see." Okay, they, we got paid just as much to erase as to draw. Okay, mm-hmm. and we did it, and we were support for the shows. You know, so I, you know, if if there was anything that that got a little tiny bit frustrating, um, it was one episode of Deep Space Nine where somewhere in the story they came across the most fabulous object in the galaxy 
what should that look like? <laughs> we had no idea. Uh, I think John Eves did a couple of sketches. I did a bunch of sketches. Um, and, and we kept going back and doing more and doing more. Um, uh, but for me, with things like, like spaceships, okay, alien ships, Starfleet ships, um, I was very, very lucky to have a lot of these uh, sail through with a minimum of, of changes. Um, I will say, you know, and, and this is kind of a famous story already, uh, Voyager got totally changed in midstream. Um, I had what I thought was a, a valid, you know, fast-looking, kick-ass little ship. And Jerry Taylor, I love her to pieces. Our, uh, Jerry Taylor, the producer, took me aside and said, look, can you make it a little curvier, kind of like a Lexus? <laughs> and I said, okay. And it, for you, Jerry, anything. <laughs> um, but luckily... Luckily, the concept version of Voyager is now a little physical diecast model. Okay, and I'm glad that that you know folks have recognized that could have been Voyager. Okay, I thought it was valid. Uh, the producers allowed us to get all the way up to a three foot mock-up before Jerry told me to kind of make it curvy. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, did you have uh, did you have anything else for uh, for Rick tonight? Um, not really, but I did like uh, in Deep Space Nine. Remember that sail, like the old Bajoran sailboat they had in space, Jim Martin. That was yeah, a Jim that, Martin ship. That love was it. really that was really cool. Did you have I any love involvement it. in that one? Or? No. See, I, what a lot of people I think don't really understand is that we had two separate art departments okay um next generation and voyager were in one building and ds9 and the feature films and star trek enterprise were in a different a different location okay i only worked on ds9 for about like the first three seasons um and jim martin and and john eves and ricardo delgado um you know each contributed some just amazing work. Yeah, I love that. So, that was, that so, was great. Yeah. You know, we we did what we what we could. We did everything that we could. Craig, thank you very much for calling in tonight and give us a call back again sometime, okay? Yeah, thanks, Ken. Thank you. Uh, 646-558-8656 is the phone number to call. 646-558-8656. Got about 10 minutes left in the show. We've got a couple of other questions uh, coming up as well. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to remind you about something that we would love it if you did it after the show. Um, right after this show, actually. Stay on Facebook and catch the live recording of Priority One, also a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Each Tuesday at 11 Eastern, 8 Pacific, Elijah, Kenna, and Anthony bring you news from all over the Star Trek multiverse. That's for you, Anthony. So uh, be sure and check that out. It's TV and movie news. It's gaming news. It's literary reviews. It's all kinds of stuff. 
Uh, they do that every Tuesday night right after our show. So uh, hopefully you brought lots of snacks before you sat down for this because there's no time. Oh, no, there's no time. Immediately after this show, go to Facebook.com slash Priority One Podcast and check out the live stuff that they do. Uh, if that gets too late for you, if you need to go to bed, if you need to rest your weary head, it's okay. It'll be out as a podcast on Friday. So podcast.roddenberry.com or just search for Priority One uh, wherever you uh, get your podcasts. Uh, before the show started, Rick, we actually had a video caller from our friend Earl. Um, he had, uh, well, he had a question for you. And uh, let's see if we can uh, bring him in via tape. Really excited to have Rick Sternbach on this week because he is one of my heroes in the area of astronomical artwork. And I'm sure a lot of people will remember him from Next Gen. The first time I remember becoming aware of his work was in 1980 when I was, you know, a kid perusing the credits of Carl Sagan's Cosmos on PBS, which that show featured some greats in the field of space artwork, people like Don Dixon, Adolf Schaller, and Rick himself. And I'm really tempted to ask an open-ended question such as, what was it like working on Cosmos? But to kind of keep things in a trekkish vein, I'm also curious as to whether it was ever a fight to depict space accurately versus depicting it as, you know, cool, whiz-bang, let's just put some multicolored nebulae over here for no good reason. I ever I wonder if that was ever a fight at any point during his time working on the Trek series. So, Rick, how convenient that uh, you had mentioned yes. Cosmos not that long ago, and then Earl had a question, well, he had a comment about how much he liked your work on Cosmos. Hmm. And uh, he wants to know about the science versus science fiction in Star Trek. Were, were there moments that it was a struggle to say, oh, but the real science would be this, but to make it artistic and neat looking, it's this other thing. Where, where do you draw that line, and what, what were those battles like? Well, I Again, they weren't exactly battles, <laughs> okay? But, you know, uh, Michael Kuda and I, we, we did our level best to, um, you know, provide the writers with, with bits and pieces that they might want to work into dialogue uh, or work into descriptions of uh, outer space uh, uh, scenes outside the ship. Um, so we we gathered together as much information as we could. Um, you know, I, I, I have a number of, of uh, uh, friends who are, you know, they're honest to God astronomers, um, uh, you know, real life engineers. Uh, one, of, uh, one of my pals is uh, Dr. Steve Howe, who has been working with real antimatter. <laughs> and Steve taught me everything I needed to know about how the warp core would work with uh, deuterium, anti-deuterium, uh, how hot the plasma would be to drive the ship. So we put all of this stuff together. We put all this information together, and the writers would send us uh, script pages, okay, with some of the tech missing, okay? You know, Jordy, Captain, we have to tech the tech. <laughs> And we helped out with the proper terminology. And again, like I said, I didn't want to fill their mouths with incomprehensible stuff. Okay. Um, 
yes, I will take the blame for a little bit of techno babble, but to me, if it's if it's correct, it's not babble. <laughs> you know, if that makes any sense. Uh, but we tried to make it as 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 simple as we could, um, and also tailored for the different characters. Okay, Riker wouldn't say the same sorts of tech as Jordy. Okay, so uh, you know we over the years. Okay, over TNG and and Voyager, especially for me, we came up with like I don't know maybe three thousand pages of uh, of of notes uh, that we hoped would be helpful. You know. And I, I, I think it worked out pretty well. Uh, actually, one of our listeners says, uh, Jeff says, uh, how the warp core works. Very well, thank you. So uh, that's, <laughs> Wait, that, that's, that's Michael Kuda's answer for the Heisenberg compensators. Oh, nice. Good. Yeah, and they do work well <laughs> until they don't. Yeah. That's, right. that's right. Well, they work and, and they don't work at the same time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Good. laughs> I've got a question for you really quickly. Thinking about... Uh, the different things that you have worked on. I mean, there, there's sort of movie era track, there's TNG track. And then when you go to deep space nine, deep space nine has a very different sort of visual language than everything we had seen to TNG at that point. At the same time, you're, I mean, uh, the, the, the crew on next gen is relatively regularly um, speaking the visual language of Klingons as well. I'm curious, is there, is there one that is like the one that you're like, oh, yeah, when I could, when I could go back and start drawing Cardassians, they have tech, or when I can go in and start, you know, at really digging in on, on later Federation tech. I mean, is, is, is there one of those languages that speaks to you personally from a visual standpoint? Well, I, th- I think I had, I, I, it, it was a toss-up for me for the most interesting non-Starfleet, okay? Starfleet I could do in my sleep, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the interesting stuff was really the Klingon stuff and the Cardassian stuff because they, uh, you know, especially when we were starting out providing sketches uh, for Deep Space Nine, um, Herman Zimmerman, the production designer, said, we have to start thinking like Cardassians, Okay. Uh, with the 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 shape of the of the station, with the pylons, um, taking some cues, uh, taking some cues off of the the costumes, the the makeup on the Cardassian neck, we would work that sort of stuff in, okay. And uh, I mean, look look at look at the way look at the way Russian space hardware does not look exactly like American space hardware. Okay, uh, there are there there are shapes that are are uh, unique to each side. Okay, and uh, you know when when doing our Cardassian um, ship. Okay, like the Galar class, the Galar class cruiser. Okay, uh, I went through a lot of different sketches on that until finally Peter Lauritsen, our, our visual effects producer, said, "Oh, just make it weird." Because I was going in a in a very um, uh, uh, a very sort of simple mundane kind of a, a spaceship shape, and then I thought to myself, "Oh my God, why not borrow again? You know, 
simpler shapes. Look at the Egyptian Ankh symbol. Okay, and there, there's some, for me, there are, there are, are sort of visual connections between the Cardassians and the Egyptian pharaohs and that sort of thing. Um, so the Gaylor-class ship became um, very much like the Ankh. And that's how I approached um, a lot of the, the detail shapes on the, on the, the, the Cardassian hardware. Uh, you know, and, and like Herman said, we had to think like Cardassians. Their shapes were different. Uh, Starfleet people were not used to all that stuff. And they said so in dialogue. Um, so I, I think, I, I, I think, you know, for, for, for Deep Space Nine to look the way it did, I think was just an absolute triumph. Rick, uh, we cannot thank you enough. Uh, you're an awesome guest and uh, and a heck of a guy. And we have hit the end of our show, which means you have to come back sometime. Uh, we really hope that uh, that you'll join us again and do another uh, another round of Trek talk and science and sci-fi talk with us. You bet. All right. Uh, folks, I want to remind you of a couple of things. One is to uh, like and share this video because we sure do appreciate it when you appreciate us. Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live by Infinity Networks. Producer, Brandon Bradley. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Star Trek <laughs> Roddenberry Podcast Network, including not just Mission Log, but also Women at Warp, Priority One, and the Trek files. Thanks to everyone who joined us live or later and we will talk to you next week. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.